teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Father, we are so grateful to you. As Tim said earlier, we're grateful that we can come and praise you together. Lord, we are grateful for your church and how you've designed it. You died to purchase it and, Lord, set it up in such a way that you use us to help one another, encourage one another, to come alongside one another in time of difficulty. And, Lord, I know many here in our body are facing difficulties even now. Father, I pray that you would use your word to bring them encouragement, to bring them admonishment where needed, to bring help. And, Lord, that we would understand your truth and apply it by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, when God made the universe, after that first week, what did it say in terms of his own assessment of what he had made? He's pleased with it, right? It's very good. It's very good. But then rebellion came. Rebellion came at the hand of Satan, and he was able to convince a third of the host of heaven to follow him in his rebellion against God. And it wasn't long before Satan brought that war from heaven to earth. He deceived Eve, and Adam followed along in rebellion against God and disobeyed and ate the fruit. And as a result, we were sucked into the conflict. We too were, had become enemies of God. In fact, in Genesis 3.15, God declared that there would be ongoing hostility between mankind and the serpent. And that one day, in the future, a certain man would come, and that man would crush the head of the serpent. We know who that man is. Jesus Christ came, and he did achieve ultimate victory over Satan and his legions when he gave up his life upon a cross after having lived a perfect life. Hebrews 2.14 says, Jesus' death really was a death blow for Satan. Colossians 2.15 says that through the cross, Jesus disarmed the spiritual powers, triumphing over them through his death on that cross. And in a real sense, the humiliating public display of our Savior was really the humiliation of His enemies. Through Christ dying on that cross, though He appeared powerless, it was actually through that act, Hebrews 2.14 says, that rendered Satan powerless. And as the nails were being driven into our Savior, it was actually our Savior driving Satan from His foothold over creation. Christ has won. Christ is one. Amen. No longer, and think about this, no longer does the sentence of eternal destruction in hell for our sin hang over us. Christ broke that. For any who would repent and believe and place their trust in Jesus Christ, place their hope in the death that he died for their sins on that cross, that the the line would be broken, the stranglehold upon us would be cut. Satan was defeated Satan was defeated. And Jesus will offer freedom from enslavement to him for any who would turn in repentance and belief. You know, one day Jesus is going to come back and claim his victory fully. One day he's going to return and claim the prize for which he died. And that moment in God's providence has not yet arrived. God has chosen to allow for a time his conquered enemy to continue fighting. 
for his enemy to continue to roam about as a roaring lion, as we read earlier. God has chosen to not yet fully realize the victory that was won at the cross. Jesus will complete that one day, probably in the near future. But for now, a war still rages. For now, we still have a battle that we must fight. And as Paul ends his letter to the Ephesians, he reminds us of that battle. He reminds us that, that we are in a war. Paul had given all this encouragement in this letter. He talked about Christ's victory that he had won. He talked about the fact that we could have redemption through his blood. He encouraged us with the knowledge and the idea of salvation and all that God has done to save us and, and to give us all these spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. He also mentioned how we've been delivered from bondage to sin and Satan. But after all of this encouragement, he does remind us, though, we still have a foe to fight. And if you could please stand with me as I read in Ephesians 6, we'll be reading beginning in verse 10. God's word says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you may be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf as well, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which, I was, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> Again, Paul tells us here, we're in a war. <clears throat> he describes it as a wrestling, a struggle, a close combat that we have with an enemy. An enemy who is not human. An enemy who is not born of flesh and blood. A spiritual enemy. That enemy of Christ and the church is none other than the devil, as he describes, and also his minions, other evil forces that are at play. And their weapons are not physical, but they are spiritual. And we talked about last week how the devil attacks through many schemes, methods, strategies. He has a plan. We discussed how chief among his plan is to pervert God's truth, to undermine God's word, to make us doubt Scripture or misunderstand it to misunderstand or not understand the gospel, to thwart the gospel going forth, to thwart it being proclaimed. These are a main part of Satan's strategy. But also, too, we talked about part of his strategy is to tempt believers, to sin, to sow discord in the church and to bring affliction. These are what Satan is actively doing. And Paul points out here in Ephesians 6, not just the enemy that we face, but also how to face that enemy. Previously, we looked at our enemy. Today, we're going to look at our mission. How are we to fight in this war? Because it is a spiritual war, Paul tells us we need to put on spiritual armor. But before we consider that armor, we have to understand a couple of things. One, we have to understand what this spiritual war is, how to fight it, and what it is not. Because I've read a number of books 
on spiritual warfare, looked at a number of articles, and I have to say this, there's a lot of unbiblical teaching out there on spiritual warfare. Some very damaging and dangerous teaching. I think Satan has done a very successful job in our day of distracting and confusing God's people on this issue. I think he has done a masterful job of diverting attention away from the plain instruction that we have in the Word of God into all kinds of useless and even harmful practices. And I guess, you know, really we should expect this, right? Because what is a a key strategy employed in every war? To deceive the enemy, right? To trick them, to give them false information, to get them fighting in the wrong place or fighting in the wrong way. Would we not expect the greatest deceiver in all of history to implement that strategy as well? To deceive God's people into fighting battle the wrong way or with the wrong means. We should expect him to do this. We should expect him to put much effort in trying to thwart us and trying to have us move the battle from how God says we should fight it to how he wants us to fight it. And I think many Christians are losing their battle with sin and with Satan because they've been lured in by this master of deception. He's given faulty intel that many have bought into so that they do not use the right weapons or the right armor. So in considering this spiritual war that we are all in, let's first talk about what this spiritual war is not. If you pick up, again, any book on spiritual warfare, if you do an internet search on those two two words, spiritual warfare, I think what you will probably find is that in those writings, they will tell you that nearly every problem we face, every sin we struggle with, every health issue we have, every lack of success in our life, every negative event is Satan's fault, that he's behind it all. You'll see then instruction on how to identify the evil spirit or demon behind that situation, that problem, and how to get rid of him through various procedures or prayer formulas. I've even read of secret codes that we need to learn in order to speak against Satan. A lot of these books describe these elaborate demonic realms and and this hierarchy and authority structure, and and they tell us the rules of engagement in such a structure. For example, uh, one book I read said this, once demons gain entry to a human body, they establish various strongholds. Within a person, a chain of commands controls all strongholds in demons. These ruling spirits and strongholds in a person ultimately take their orders from the strong man in the heavenlies. In order to destroy the stronghold, one must bind up the strong man, cut and cast off all cords between the strong man and the spirits inside the person, and then continue the deliverance. In one case, a spirit of lung cancer, and these are in capital letters, so he's naming a demon. A spirit of lung cancer refused to leave. Upon questioning, the spirit said he couldn't leave because high blood pressure had blocked him. Again, capital letters, demon of high blood pressure. Unless high blood pressure left first, he couldn't leave. And then when we cast out high blood pressure, lung cancer eventually left. And then the author added this caution. Of course, spirits could be trying to fool you, stalling for time. You know, this, this would be humorous if it wasn't so serious. It would be funny if it wasn't so dangerous. Believers are said in these books and these writings that uh, to have evil spirits, to have demons within them, demons named such as alcohol, lust, pride, self-will, defiance, murder, nicotine, gluttony, a whole list. Again, all these are capitalized. These are considered to be names of demons behind your problem. And to be free, you must rebuke the demon, claim authority over him, and then you're instructed to cast him out. 
many in these deliverance ministries, they are quick to say, well, you can't be owned by a demon. A believer can't be owned by Satan, but you can be controlled by one. And thus he must be cast out. They talk about how demons can gain entry through many, uh, many means, through charms and tarot cards, crystals, even dolls or puppets. Demons can gain a foothold through movies, TV shows, or even cartoons. Demons are also described as being able to enter by what are called soul ties to others who are afflicted, such as parents or friends or bosses or teachers. And even you can get a demon if you are named after someone else in your family who had a demon. In some circles, this mentality is so pervasive that sanctification has been reduced to trying to find what demon it is causing the problem in my life and get rid of them and then take steps not to let them come back in. And that's my focus. There was one biblical counselor I read, David Pallison. He mentioned in his book how he'd been counseling a couple who had come out of a ministry like this. And during the middle of his counseling session, they were having marital problems and an argument came up. And as they argued with one another, it became more heated to the point that they began rebuking the demons in each other, trying to cast them out. Again, it would be funny if it wasn't so serious. They were so misguided and misled that they were blaming the problems in their marriage on demons that were inhabiting each other. Again, that's not to say Satan was not uh, behind and tempting and, and all these other things within their marriage, but they believed that he was actually indwelling them, and, and that was the problem. So what do we make of all this? All these various claims. How does this understanding of spiritual warfare compare to what we see in Scripture? Can believers be demonized? Can we be controlled by evil spirits? Does spiritual warfare consist of these demon hunts and deliverances and binding powerful spirits, casting them out, rebuking them? I would ask you, do we see anything like this in Ephesians 6, which deals with spiritual warfare? Paul clearly does tell us here that we are in a spiritual battle, that Satan and his demons are very active, that they are on the go, that they are attacking us constantly, and that we must fight against them. Paul doesn't deny that at all. But notice how he says we are to engage in this battle. Notice the commands he gives here. He says in verse 10, be strengthened in the Lord. In verse 11, he says, put on the full armor of God. In verse 13, he says, take up the full armor of God. In verse 14, he says, stand firm. Think about that. Here in this text, probably the most extensive passage in Scripture on spiritual warfare, we see no command whatsoever to bind Cast out, deliver, rebuke, command a demon. In fact, it's very much different than that. Maybe perhaps, though, there are other texts that talk about this, that that describe that kind of activity. So let's look at a few other passages this morning. I want to just have us quickly look at the other texts in the New Testament that deal with spiritual warfare. The first is the one that Brad read from earlier, 1 Peter 5. So if you could turn over there for a moment, 1 Peter 5. It's interesting here as Peter approaches the end of his letter, like Paul, he also brings up the fact that we have a great enemy that we must fight. And notice what Peter says and how to deal with that enemy. And I'll be reading from verse 6. We'll read some of the same verses that Brad read from. Peter says here, Therefore be humble, therefore, excuse me, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And here comes the warning. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, 
strong in faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Again, Peter acknowledges we have a powerful enemy who's on the loose, who's on the prowl, who's looking to devour, who's ready to attack. But notice, how does Peter say we are to engage that enemy? What's the context here? First, in this attitude of humility, right? As Brad pointed out earlier. And then Peter says, watch for him, look out for him. He's after you and bind him and cast him out. No, what did Peter say? Resist him, firm in faith, strong in your faith. Resist him by trusting in God. Resist him by being humble. Let's go back one book, James 4. It's just one letter prior to 1 Peter, James 4. James also brings up towards the end of his letter the fact that we have an enemy about. And he describes in verse 7 how we are to deal with him. But James, let's begin in verse 4, provide some context. James says here, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scriptures speak to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. So he's describing here the struggle. Those who are uh, considering following after the ways of the world, which Satan has got over. Verse 6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. What's it say now? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So again, he's addressing, addressing those who are in sin, who are pursuing the ways of the world. Of course, Satan is going to be involved in that and temptation and other things. He is the God of this world. And so how does James here say we are to engage the evil one? Does he talk about casting him out or rebuking him? What does James tell us to do? Submit to God. Resist the devil. Same word again. And he will flee. And the context here shows that this resistance means not to be friends with the world. It means to submit to God. It means to draw near to God, to repent of our sin, to be humble, just like Peter talked about. There's nothing here about delivering people from demons. One other passage that Paul mentions spiritual warfare in is 2 Corinthians 10. And he says there in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of forces. Ah, now it sounds like we're going to get into some binding and rebuking here. But listen to what he says next. We are destroying speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Paul's saying here, yes, we are in a spiritual war and we fight with spiritual weapons. But that war and that battleground is for truth. It is for truth. Remember again, Satan's key strategy is to pervert the truth, to twist it, to confuse it, to keep people blinded to the gospel, 
to promote heresy and false teaching. And so Paul is saying here, refute the false teaching. Don't rebuke the entity behind it. We need to be concerned about the heresy being spoken and not allow any idea, any statement, any thought that is contrary to the truth of Christ and about Christ. That is what we are to fight. We're to expose false teaching. We're to expose and and speak against it. So let's take a step back here a minute. We've looked briefly at 1 Peter and James, 2 Corinthians and Ephesians. We'll get more into that one. But consider all that's been said in these four key passages in the New Testament on spiritual warfare. Notice that in them we are given no instruction at all to bind or rebuke, to deliver, cast out. No instruction even to talk to a demon. And all four of these texts... In fact, believers are not commanded anywhere to do this. Not in the epistles, not in Acts, not in Revelation, not in the Gospels. Are believers commanded to carry out spiritual warfare in this way? Now, we do see many examples of demonic activity in the Gospels, don't we? How about in Acts? Do we see any there? Yeah, there's a lot. And we do see Jesus and the disciples rebuking and casting out demons. But we have to remember something. The Gospels and Acts, in those passages we see that, that's historical narrative. It is describing what happened. It's not telling us what we're supposed to do. They are what's called descriptive, not prescriptive passages. That is, they describe events. They don't prescribe a course of action. This is one of the most common errors that I see in regards to Bible study and application, is to take a passage which is really just telling a story. It's describing events or things that happened, and then to attach to it some mandate from the passage. Just because something happened doesn't mean that that is the requirement for all of us for all time. For example, um, if you remember when Peter was asked about paying the temple tax and he came up to Jesus and you remember what Jesus told him how to get the tax? Those of you fishermen out there would love this one, right? He said, Peter, go into Galilee, drop a hook in the water. First fish you take out, look in its mouth. Remember what he found in there? Money. Right? He had those fake stories about the golden goose and all that. We had a golden fish here. Right? So does that mean that this is how you and I are supposed to pay our taxes? I mean, think about it. It happened. Jesus commanded Peter to go do it. Yeah, for some of us, for me, this would not be a great way to do it because I can't fish. But some of you, hey, this would be wonderful. Or how about the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew 14? Where just from a few fish fish and a few loaves, Jesus blessed it and God provided for everyone and then some. So is is that how we are supposed to conduct our meals? To grab whatever scraps we can, put them on the table, pray and then wait for God to put a bunch of food there. That might work if you're George Mueller, but for any of the rest of us, God tells us in his word that we must work to earn money to purchase that food. Paul said it in Thessalonians, if a man will not work, let him not eat. Or what about traveling across water? Matthew 14, Jesus walked across the water. And then you remember what he told Peter? Get out of the boat. Come here. So because he commanded Peter to walk on the water, does that command apply to all of us then? That every time we come to a body of water, a lake or a pool, we are to traverse it in that manner. You see the point? 
These are stories, they are accounts which describe Jesus or the apostles performing miracles, including casting out demons. But these miracles happen and they're described and told to us so that we would recognize that God was authenticating their ministry and what they spoke. Acts 2.22, it says that Jesus was attested, affirmed by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him. Or Hebrews 2.4 says that God confirmed the testimony, the word of the apostles by signs and wonders and various miracles. So Jesus rebuking or casting out demons or commissioning his disciples to do the same thing doesn't mean that that's a mandate for us. It's simply telling us, as Jesus said in Matthew 12, that someone more powerful than Satan had come. And he was demonstrating that authority through casting out demons. Now, some bring up in this discussion Mark 16, 17, where Jesus is quoted as saying, These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And some take this text and say, well, see, look, Jesus says all believers are going to be casting out demons. But there's a couple of things you have to take note of here. One is that the context of Mark 16, and we don't have time to go through all of this, but I'm just bringing it up to let you know I've looked at it. But the context here indicates that Jesus is referring most likely to the apostles. And we see that later in the book of Acts. And also, too, this passage has problems as being a mandate to cast out demons Because this passage was not likely even part of the original part of Scripture. If you look in your Bibles, verses 9 through 20, there should be a comment there where your Bible notes this. If you have any questions on that, um, there's a couple messages I can refer you to. But the point being is this text is not one that can be used to say that there's a mandate for believers to be casting out or binding demons. Now, while the Gospels and Acts, as I've mentioned, are primarily descriptive, The epistles are prescriptive. They were written expressly for the purpose of giving instruction, of telling us how we who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are to live. That's why there's many commands that are given to them. And so in these epistles from James and Peter and Paul, where they talk about and give instruction regarding how we are to confront Satan, these are mandates. What they say is prescribed. What they tell us to do is what we are to do. And again, none of them tell us to look for demons, identify them, and cast them out. None of them talk about this whole scheme of a strong man in the heavenlies controlling the lower demons and having to deal with him. None of the scriptures talk about the demon of lung cancer or anything like that. Yes, they exist. Yes, they attack us. Yes, believers can be tempted and afflicted and even at times deceived through false teaching because of demons and evil spirits. But... They cannot dwell in you. You don't find any of this in these passages. Again, this point can't be emphasized enough. Because again, I think the prescriptive passages are being ignored. But before we get to how God wants us to respond to Satan's attacks and the instruction that is given to us, particularly in Ephesians 6, I want to talk about this whole notion of believers having demons dwelling in them. One author said this, To deliverance ministers, the question, can Christians have demons, is not even worth pondering. Experiences with thousands of deliverance sessions leave no doubt in my mind that Christians not only can, but do have demons. Another author said this, 
The question is not whether Christians can have demons, but rather, can I ever find a Christian without a demon? That's quite a claim. Is it true? Careful study of the scriptures again shows that believers can be afflicted by demons. They can be tempted by demons. We can't even be at times deceived by false teaching that they propagate. But nowhere in the scriptures does it say believers can be indwelt by demons. In fact, there's no example in the Bible anywhere of a true believer, a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, one whom he has saved, one whom he has transferred from Satan's kingdom to his own. There's no example of any one of them being possessed or indwelt or controlled by a demon. Some people say, well, what about Ananias and Sapphira? Didn't Peter say that Satan had filled their heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Where does it say they were saved? Just because they were part of the church doesn't mean they were Christians. We aren't told anywhere that they were believers. Some bring up David in 1 Chronicles 21, 1, where he was, it says, moved by Satan to number his army, to take a census. God wasn't pleased with that because David was showing pride and relying on men rather than God. So some people say, see, Satan took over David there and made him commit that sin. But it doesn't say that. It says David was moved, or the word means to be incited or enticed, or or you could have the idea of being tempted. Satan did not indwell Peter and make him do that. He brought circumstances or people along to tempt, uh, not Peter, but David to do that. Some bring up Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1.20, where Paul said he's gonna, he was handing them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. But those were men who were false teachers, who had shipwrecked their faith, that Paul was kicking out of the church into Satan's domain. 1 Corinthians 5.5 talks about the incestuous man who Paul says was to be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. There it's talking about, hey, put that man out of the church so that perhaps Satan brought, uh, affliction brought upon him by Satan may bring him to repentance. It's not talking about control there. There's no examples in the Bible anywhere of a genuine believer being dwelled in by a spirit. Now, there are examples, again, of believers being tempted. Jesus himself was tempted by Satan. There are examples of believers being afflicted by the evil one. Job would be one primary one. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 was afflicted. There are examples and warnings in the scripture not to be deceived by the demon doctrines of demons. But nowhere is a believer said to be controlled by one. And in addition to that example... The Bible describes believers as no longer being under Satan's domain. Colossians 1.13, do you remember what that says? It says that we have been rescued, that God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We no longer answer to Satan. We are no longer in his world. We no longer walk according to his ways if you know and love Jesus Christ. Christ has taken you from that, taken you from bondage in his kingdom to be free in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. John said in 1 John 5.18, We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he, speaking here of Jesus, who was born of God, keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. That word keep here means to guard, to watch over, to protect. The word for touch here means to uh, take hold of, to bring harm to. It's saying here that Jesus protects his children. 
that Jesus watches over them. He guards them so that Satan would not take hold of them, so that Satan would not even come close to them, so that Satan would not do them harm. Jesus would be a poor guard indeed if he allowed his child to be controlled by a demon. He would be a terrible guard if that were the case. Because Jesus protects his children from Satan's grasp because we belong to him. When he died on the cross and spilled his blood, that was payment for our souls to free us from the evil one. So we would never be under his control ever again. We belong to Christ and he will not share us with any demon. Second Corinthians six fifteen describes that principle when it says, What harmony has Christ with Belial? Another name for Satan, which means worthless. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, believers here are described, just as in Ephesians, as the temple of God in which God dwells. And God will not cohabit with any evil spirit. Yes, God lets Satan attack his temple, but he will not let him dwell in it. 1 John 4, 4 says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Speaking there of false prophets teaching demonic doctrines, he says, You have overcome them because greater is he who is what? In you, than he who is in. Don't miss the distinction he's making there. Greater is he who is in you. God is in you, not Satan. Satan's out there in the world. He's not dwelling in you. In fact, the one dwelling in you is greater than the one out in the world. And, you know, it may seem odd, but it sounds logical to me. If the one stronger inside of me is he's stronger than the one outside, he's not going to let the one outside inside. Does that make any sense? When it comes to our sin, believers cannot blame a demon for it. Again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. James 1.14 says, let, each, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Paul said in Galatians 5.16, But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And if you read that whole second half of Galatians 5, you'll see that basically for the believer, there's only two options. One is a believer would walk by his own flesh, that is by the desires consistent with a sinful nature, or believer walks by the Spirit, under the Spirit's control. There's no third category of a demon-possessed believer. As a believer, our sin is because of our own nature. As a believer, when the Holy Spirit is in control, we have His fruit in our life. It's one or the other. There's no demon possession involved. Again, Satan and demons can tempt, can bring affliction, and they can deceive. But brothers and sisters, you cannot be possessed by an evil spirit. You're not at their mercy. You can't be controlled by a demon. And as powerful even as Satan is, he himself cannot enter you if you're God's child. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus keeps his own and the evil one cannot touch him. But there are those who, despite these passages, despite there's no examples in the Bible, there are those who say that a believer can be indwelt, that Satan can touch you, that evil spirits can dominate and dwell in you. And listen to their reason. I 
Most books say this, but here's one where the author articulates it directly. He says this, theological arguments must give way to experience. That's it. Even scientists, he says, are known to abandon pet theories when actual experiences do not support them. Over 99% of the people I have delivered have been born again Christians, including many pastors. If you do not believe that Christians can have demons, I suggest you attend a number of deliverance sessions. So what's he telling us there? That, that I am to let experience be the ultimate determination of what is true? That I am to interpret the Bible in light of my experiences? Now, this doesn't discount experiences. But we have to remember that experiences are very subjective, aren't they? The Bible is the only objective source of truth. It is the only standard. It is the only reference point. And so my experiences must be looked at through the lens of Scripture, not the other way around. And the Bible speaks very plainly on this issue of spiritual warfare, that we as believers are under God's control and not subject to the domination of Satan. The Bible is very clear that we must resist the evil one, not by binding, not by casting him out, not by rebuking or commanding him, but by putting on the armor of God. That's how we fight this battle. But if we ignore the Bible's plain instruction in search of an experience, we open ourselves up to danger. We open ourselves up to danger. Think about this a minute. Do you think of being as powerful as intelligent, as experienced, as deceptive as Satan would not give experiences in order to lead someone down the wrong road? Would he not have that as part of his repertoire? And at times, if that is what we want, if we want the experience, sometimes God will let that happen. I'm sure that Satan is more than willing to let a few demons be exercised out of somebody if he means that it can be distracting people away from what God has clearly told us in his word how to battle Satan. He can easily conjure up experiences to deceive. Remember, we're dealing with a crafty lion. We're dealing with a deceptive serpent. Now, evil spirits can and do dwell in unbelievers. The Bible shows that clearly. If you're ever confronted with somebody you think is demon-possessed, don't talk to the Spirit. Talk to God and preach the gospel to that person. Don't deal with the demon. The Bible doesn't tell us to do that. The only, the only thing that can free someone from the power of Satan is what? Am I rebuking the demon? Even if God did use that and the demon left, if I don't tell him the gospel, I haven't helped his eternal state, have I? And ultimately, when I leave, the demon will come back because God is not dwelling in that person. I need to proclaim the gospel. You remember the example I gave a couple weeks ago, Sergei, who was a Satanist. There was clearly a demonic experience that took place there and how the pastor who he met with prayed for him, prayed to God, had others pray, and he told this man the gospel. He didn't deal with the demon. And eventually, that man repented and placed his trust in Christ and God freed him. But it was only because he realized he was a sinner in need of a Savior. Only the gospel can release anyone from Satan. Only repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will loose anyone from Satan's control. We spent 
a lot more time than I had originally intended on what spiritual warfare is not. But I'm very concerned about this. I'm concerned because, for one, chiefly, this notion of battling demons, casting them out to free believers from sins or trials, it's not consistent with the Word of God. It's contrary to what Scripture teaches. I'm concerned because I think the devil is using this as a smokescreen to distract believers from the only means in which we are to deal with our sin by admitting to it, by taking responsibility for it, by confessing it, by taking steps of genuine repentance to not do it again. That's how we deal with sin, not looking for some demon as the cause. I'm concerned because this whole issue, I think, causes a person to focus more on what or who is behind their trial or struggle rather than what God wants us to learn from that trial. As in Job's case, he often questioned and tried to figure out the why and the who's behind it instead of what God wanted him to learn from it. I'm concerned especially that many are putting themselves at great risk by dealing with demons unbiblically. This is dangerous. We're not designed to fight on their turf. They are more powerful, more intelligent, and if we do not battle them in the way that God has said to, the consequences can be severe. I have experienced it in my own life. I have seen what happens to people when they play Satan's game. When I was in junior high, I was at a church that was very involved in this type of thing, and deliverance ministry, and uh, identifying demons and casting them out. I was at many deliverance sessions myself. I remember seeing... After a point in time, some adults who, after they had been supposedly delivered by these evil spirits, they began talking and acting like toddlers. Grown men and women who were walking around talking like babies. Some who acted like infants who wore diapers, sucked their thumbs, and had bottles. Fortunately, we left that church. But it wasn't long after that that uh, we found out about an investigation that was being conducted on them because it was discovered that people were being physically whipped and beaten to drive demons out of them. That included children. And there was at least one case where an infant was beaten to drive a demon out of it. We don't mess with Satan on his terms. He's a dangerous and powerful foe. And we must engage him only in the way that God has called us to through his word. That takes us to our second point, what spiritual warfare is. How do we then fight against Satan and his minions? Look back again at verse 10 of Ephesians 6. Paul tells us explicitly how. Notice the commands again that he gives. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And he begins verse 14 with, Stand firm, therefore, and just begins to describe the armor of God. Did you guys notice, what word does Paul repeat here several times in those first four verses? Did you catch it? First, first uh, word in verse 14. Stand firm. Stand firm. Histemi, a word that means to stand, uh, to stand firm, to stand fast, to hold your ground. And then he also mentions in verse 13, he uses the word resist, which comes from the same word, uh, same root. It's anthistemi, 
which has this idea of to stand firm against. It's the same word that Peter used in 1 Peter 5, 9 when he said, resist the devil and strong in faith. It's the same word that James used in James 4, 4 when he said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's a consistent pattern here in these texts, aren't there? There's a prescription given in each of these passages by the apostles in how we are to engage the evil one. And that engagement is to stand firm, to resist, to hold your ground. Don't turn around and run. Because if you'll notice, there's no armor for our backs. We are told here as we wrestle these evil forces that we are to resist. As the devil seeks to hinder our walk with Christ. As evil spirits try to make the church ineffective. As demons bring their onslaught of temptation and deception and affliction. God says, make a stand, take defense, and I will help you to do that. I will give you the armor that you need to resist. But you must stand. You must resist. Don't relax. Don't think that it's because it's my battle and the victory's already won. You can just sit back and not be concerned about Satan's doings. Don't have the idea that I'll just leave it to the Lord. I'm not going to worry about it. He'll take care of it. Greater is he who's in me than he is in the world. No, giving the devil too little attention is just as dangerous as giving him too much. We are to stand against, not stand idle. I love what uh, William Grinnell, he wrote a wonderful book. If you want to dig more into the armor of God, uh, William Grinnell wrote a book called The Complete, The Christian in Complete Armor. There's also an abridged version where the English is made a little more readable. I'd encourage you to read it. He said this, The saint's sleeping time is Satan's tempting time. Every fly dares to creep on a sleeping lion. The weakest temptation is strong enough to foil a Christian who is napping in security. And you may be sure if you do let sleep overtake you, the devil will hear of it. For the thief riseth when honest men go to bed. He's saying there, be careful. Don't be idle. Don't be distracted. Pay attention. Just like Peter said, be on the alert. Satan is prowling about like a roaring lion. And he says there, we must resist him and not retreat. Because again, the armor we're given only covers the front. It means we need to stay in the battle and hold our ground. Paul says we must stand firm in verse 11 against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, we must resist in the evil day. And the evil day there is simply the day of battle, which is every day. Every day until Jesus comes back. God's enemy is roaming about. But how do we stand firm so that we can resist in the evil day? How in the world can we as mortal beings, flesh and blood, fight an enemy who is such a powerful and spiritual enemy? How do we resist an enemy that cannot be fought off with a fist or a gun or a bomb? How do we fight against an enemy that is so intelligent, who doesn't sleep, who goes about secretly and unseen? What does Paul say here? Twice. He repeats the command to what? What is it? Wake up. Put on the armor. Take up the armor. That's how you fight. Put it on. Don't stare at it. Put it on. Take up the battle. But before we do that, he says, first, we must find our strength in the Lord Jesus. Before we can put the armor on, we must find our strength in the Lord. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The idea there is before we put on any of God's armor, we must put on first the God of the armor. Before we can trust in his armor, we first must trust in him. 
Romans 13, 14 says, put on, literally clothe yourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has to be our first piece of clothing, if you will. Without him, you can't wear any of God's armor because it's not available for you to wear at all. If you don't have Jesus Christ, you don't have protection. Paul said earlier in Ephesians, without Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. He said earlier that without Christ, you are excluded from the life of God, that you have no hope, that you are separate from him, that you're in darkness, that he is not in you and therefore his power is not available to you. So to put on Christ means first to turn from your sin and place your trust in him, to seek his mercy and his forgiveness through his death on the cross. It means to strip yourself of the false armor of pride and of good works and of external religion and love of self. To put on Christ means to declare allegiance to Jesus alone for life, to declare your desire to worship him, to love him, to serve him as he created you to do. And then to put on Christ is to continue to abide in Him, to walk with Him through His Word and prayer, fellowship with other believers, and a commitment to obey Him by His grace. And it is by His grace that we have all we need to engage in this war, but we must engage. Twice Paul commands us to put on God's armor. That's telling me something. That's telling us something. God has provided the armor, but we must take action to put it on. As Oliver Cromwell told his troops, trust in God and keep your powder dry. Or like the kid at a baseball game, he saw the batter uh, praying before he went up to the plate. And so he turned to his dad and he said, Dad, does that help? And his dad said, it does if he can swing a bat. Get the point. We must trust in God through prayer, as Paul says in verse 18. But we also are to be active in being the answer to that prayer by putting on our spiritual armor. For putting on that armor is how we do battle. And be encouraged, saints. Satan carries some mighty powerful weapons, but none of them can penetrate God's armor. Not one. If you have God's armor on, you can make it. Notice again, Paul said in verse 11, put on the armor of God so that you may be able, that word there is have the power, the ability, you may be able to stand firm. Or verse 13, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. Just like God told Joshua, be strong and courageous for I'm giving you the victory. But they still had to fight. In the same way, he's telling us, don't give up. Don't run. Don't fear. Don't doubt. Don't back down. Don't surrender. Just stand your ground. I will give you the means to be able to fight this war. And too many people just give up when it's hard because temptations can be strong and overpowering, it seems. Trials sometimes don't seem to end. Soldiers get tired. Maybe you're there. Maybe you're at that place today. You're just tired, overwhelmed. Remind yourself of this. Our captain has gone before us. He's won the victory. And he tells us exactly how we can fight in this war. A war that he has won. A war that he will bring, bring to full completion upon his return. We need to stand our ground until that return. So take to heart Paul's words here where he says, gain your strength from the Lord, put on his armor, and you will be able to resist in the evil day and to stand firm. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, thank you for making a way that we could be free from our enslavement to sin and to Satan. Thank you for redeeming us, for buying us with your own blood. Lord, I pray if there are any here in this room who have not turned from their sin, who have not put on the Lord Jesus Christ by trusting in Him, by seeking His forgiveness, by crying out for mercy, that You would in this moment, Lord, prevent Satan from blinding their eyes. Help them to see and understand the truth of the Gospel so that they may be free, have eternal life with Christ. Thank You for the armor that You've provided. Thank You for the clear instruction in Your Word of how we are to battle our great enemy. Lord, I pray as we look at the armor that you have provided, that you would give us understanding and that you would enable us and move us, Lord, to put it on so that we may be able to stand firm against the devil's schemes and, Lord, to advance your kingdom for your son's name. In his name we pray. Amen.